the book of Isaiah. I want to go back a little bit and review. Chapter 54 shows a return of blessings, and blessings in such a way that it says that those who were barren, which has been the church lately, were to sing for joy and to cry out, and that they needed to extend the stakes on their tents and, and lengthen the cords, enlarge the place of the tent, because righteousness would break out and God would begin to gather his people together. Now this is on the heels of what we noticed in 51 and 52. I want to review briefly and tie this together a little better. Remember there in Isaiah 51 and 52, there are three cries to wake up, three specific warnings to awaken and to realize as we get into chapter 52, well, at the end of 51, it says that the cup that we have been drinking from, that is the cup of division, of scattering, of decimation, if you will, in the church, is going to be taken away from us and handed to those around us, to the Babylon that we dwell in, that it is going to receive the same decimation, the same destruction that we have seen in the church, again showing the parallel that we have been preaching now for years, that the troubles and trials of the church, spiritual Israel, would come ahead of those same trials and troubles that would come on physical Israel. And right here, God is making a transition or a pivot, saying, I'm taking the wine glass of trouble from you, and I'm going to give it to your tormentors, to those who have been walking over you. Then in Isaiah 52, he tells us the third warning to wake up, to put on our beautiful wedding garments, and goes on to show that we are to not let Babylon walk on us anymore, but that we are to sit up and take charge of our lives. Then he shows the two witnesses will come on the scene and sing together when they see blessing begin to return. He tells us in, in uh, verse 11 to depart, get away from that which is unclean, and we've tied that with other verses in Zephaniah 2, Micah 4, and other places which indicate we are to make a physical separation or removal from Babylon, not just a spiritual one or that which might be in our heads, but get our bodies and our heads out of the midst of Babylon. Now let's understand a major reason he wants us to quit being walked on, to sit up and to pay attention to what is going on, to wake up, if you will, is because Babylon is about to be destroyed. It is about to receive the same cup of trembling that we have seen in the church. The decimation there is going to be as complete, the scattering as complete as what we have been seeing and are still seeing within the church. It isn't over yet. Even afterward, when much of the church goes into tribulation, uh, it appears from chapter 11 that major organizations will be torn down even perhaps afterward. They may not fall apart, that is, until at least the financial crash that occurs in this country. But let's understand something. 
before this is over, before this transition from chapter 51 and 52 to 54 is done, we have Matthew 25 coming into play where all slumbered and slept and they began to wake up and some had oil in their lamps and some did not. And those who did not were counseled to find it quickly because time is very short. Let's go back to Matthew 24 for a minute. I want to tie some things together here. Some of these were covered somewhat in the series on Babylon and who Babylon is today. But I want to tie them here with these particular scriptures in Isaiah as well. Matthew 24, we understand, fits in with the six seals of Revelation. Verse 7. Well, let's notice, first of all, we, we should not forget to rehearse this, that the disciples came to Christ in front of the temple and asked questions about the end time. And he said not one stone would be left on top of another. The temple would be torn down. Now this is a prophecy for the end time and his second coming. And we have seen the temple start coming down, have we not? And one stone dropped and another dropped and another dropped and it's getting where there are fewer and fewer on top of one another. More and more independence, less and less organization and that trend will continue until nothing is left of the organizations. But somewhere in that, God is going to hand the cup of trembling to the world and most of the church will continue in it. Only those who wake up and put on the garments of righteousness have a chance of being accounted worthy, as is seen later in the uh, chapter here in Matthew 24. Meanwhile, let's notice verse 7. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. We've seen those in the church. We've seen thousands and ten thousands falling and dying at our right hand. Now we are seeing thousands and thousands of people dying in natural disasters and that will increase. So the earthquakes we have felt in the church are now going to be felt physically in the world. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Notice verse 9. Then shall they and we will have to define they, deliver you up to be afflicted, persecuted that is, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. That's speaking of us, the church. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But then we're instructed to endure to the end, and we will be saved. Now, who is the they who are going to afflict us and kill us? Let's go back to Revelation 17. In this particular chapter, 
is introduced a great whore that sits upon many waters. In the church, as I pointed out, I think in detail in the series on Babylon, we had always thought that was the Catholic Church. And she certainly, in some respects, is a mother whore who has sat upon all her little Protestant daughters and they're all going to run home to Mama, the great madam. Now, I think that that symbolism certainly is there because she is a false church and she is a whore in her own right. But the great whore that God is concerned about is the United States of America and perhaps Britain, who are the leaders of Israel today. Now, I'm not going to go back and review all of Ezekiel 17 and various other scriptures which indicate that God calls Israel a great whore. Where is most of the church today? Most is in the United States of America and scattered through the rest of Israel and Canada, Britain, and other places where Israel is in the world, and among the Gentiles to some degree. But this is a whore that is a financial institution, as we see in chapter 18, and so on. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. It is a great mystery system. It has a lot of secret societies in it. People high in politics in our country are part of those societies. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And we reviewed in that series on Babylon who is exporting sin and filth more than the United States. No one. She's the hammer of the whole earth, as Jeremiah 50 or 51 shows. Who hammers on whatever nation they wish to hammer upon in the earth today, here at the end. Let's get to verse 6. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great awe. Now I think we have somehow thought that the great beast power and the whore of the Catholic Church would be the ones who persecuted, afflicted, and martyred the saints. That came from misidentifying who the woman was here at the end. If America is the leader, the madam, if you will, of the whores of Israel who have departed from God and consorted with the world, it is our own government, it is our own people who will afflict us, persecute us, and martyr us. They have already shown their willingness to do so in places like Ruby Ridge and Waco. Whoever they decide to romp upon, they will, and they can. Much of the early persecution certainly is going to come from here, from our own people. Now, let's understand what happens to her. Remember, this woman rides the beast. Now, any time I have seen charts that people have done, they've shown a beast 
with several heads and horns, ten heads and, or ten horns and seven heads and so on. Uh, maybe I'm getting the story a little garbled, but they always depict it. And this woman is sitting on the back of the beast with a leash, riding and controlling the beast. That is an inappropriate analogy. God is speaking of a sexual situation, if you please. A great whore riding the beast. America today is willing to sit upon and ride anyone who will lay on their back for her. If they will not lay on their back for her, she lays them on their back and then mounts them. That is the analogy God uses. In that position, she as is in control of the consorting that is going on. I'll try to be somewhat delicate here. This is a very open analogy that God uses. She thinks that she can bring the orgasm of democracy anywhere, anytime she wishes to anyone. Failing that, she destroys them. Iraq would not lay down on its back for the great whore. So we are over there bringing, we think, democracy to her. I can guarantee you, based on Scripture, it will not work. Those people do not think democratically. They don't want democracy. They do not want our interference. If we leave, as soon as we leave, they will go back to fighting among themselves to determine who will be the strongest sect of the Muslims. And democracy will again be, re I mean, <laughs> not democracy, dictatorship will again be reestablished. Now that is what is going on in the world. Now America thinks she is in control and will stay in control. I was talking to a man who is involved in understanding what is going on yesterday. He's a paralegal. And I brought up something about the New World Order being instituted. And he said, we're already living under it. And that is the truth. It has been somewhat subtle. It is becoming more and more open. We are now living in the time that the great whore is riding the beast. The beast does not quite yet have its mind made up and know exactly how it is going to shape up. There are those in planning sessions who are working on it, and different ones have a different view of what the final outcome will be. The Masons think they will run it. The Skull and Bones think they will run it. The Bilderbergers think they will run it. All of these various groups, and there are more than that by far, think they will run it. And they're vying for leadership and position. Some think the United Nations will run it. 
Why do you think Bill Clinton wants to be Secretary General of the United Nations? America thinks she will run the New World Order. Our government is shot through with policies based on instituting a New World Order which removes the sovereignty of the United States, removes our borders, and makes us just one more pawn that the kings can move around. That is why they do not shut the borders to Mexico whatsoever, but let people move freely across it as they wish. They are part and parcel with what is going on, and they think they are going to run it. Our leaders, little do they know the surprise that's coming. I'm not going to go through it all again here, but at some point the beast bucks off the old whore and kills her, destroys the United States. Let's go back to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah 47, we've already covered this, but I want to review it in this context. Isaiah 47 Verse 11, now this is talking about the daughter of Babylon, this whole chapter, and we have seen, as we've gone through Isaiah, that Babylon and Israel are tied together. In fact, we have become the leader of Babylon. We think we are in control of the whole world. But notice verse 11, Therefore shall evil come upon you, you shall not know from whence it rises, and mischief shall fall upon you, you shall not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Our leaders truly think that they will usher in the New World Order, control it, and run it. They do not realize they're going to get bucked out of their position and killed. Notice chapter 48, verse 20. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Go you forth of Babylon, flee you from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing declare you, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth, say you, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. Now God is going to redeem spiritual Israel out of this. But if we look Babylonian, act Babylonian, and are being walked on by Babylon, how would God know the difference? That's why he tells us in Revelation 18.4, Babylon is fallen. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and you, that you receive not of her plague. Our sins have reached to heaven. God is aware of them. We are to get out of Babylon, not let it walk on us, if we are to be those whom God protects and redeems because he's going to hand the cup of trembling to those who do not wake up. All have slumbered and slept. That's why he makes such an important point of telling us to wake up in Isaiah 51 and 52. 
He tells us to get away from Babylon once we wake up, once we understand. Not touch the unclean thing. Then he shows that he is going to turn things around in verses 7 and 8, 9. We're to get out. And then there is a particular emphasis upon Jesus Christ in chapter 53. Just before then, it appears, that recognizing how important Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us is a key factor in the turnaround. We're in a pivotal or axial period right now. A time when we are to be waking up and putting on the garments and getting away from Babylon in every way we possibly can so that we not be identified by her. Now that is interesting to consider. Babylon will not identify with us because we won't look and act like her. Therefore, she will desire to kill us, martyr us, persecute us. But if we are different from Babylon, then God will recognize the difference, and he says he will protect us from what she's trying to do to us. Now, which shall it be? Will we wake up and put on our beautiful garments and flee Babylon, or will we look a lot like her? That is the question. Now, I believe Isaiah 53, which just seems to be dropped in out of nowhere, is a very, very important, pivotal scripture. Someone called me last night and asked me an interesting question. The question was, where in the Bible do you find that Egypt is symbolic of sin? Now, I have heard for over 50 years now, that Egypt is sin, that it typifies sin. I couldn't think of a verse that says that. And this man who called had been going through the concordance and looked up Egypt and looked up sin, and he didn't find anything that says Egypt is symbolic of sin. Now, certainly, Egypt and, Sol and Sodom are tied together. And through unleavened bread, we recognize that we should be putting sin out of our lives as we come out, or as Israel came out from Egypt, and so on. He found several references that said that Egypt rep represented bondage and slavery. Now that might clarify a little bit, if it might be something I want to put in the paper. I want to examine it more. I haven't had a chance yet. When were the slaves turned loose? I had a discussion with someone recently who was having trouble seeing that since Israel had to stay in their houses until morning, they weren't released from sin or from Egypt, <laughs> there I go again, weren't released from Egypt and didn't leave until the next night because they had to leave by night. And nothing says they left Egypt by night, says they left Ramses by night. 
But if we look upon Egypt as a type of bondage to sin, or slavery if you please, then God destroyed the Egyptian empire the night of the 14th. And Pharaoh told all the slaves to leave as soon as possible. Their bondage to Egypt ended the night of the 14th. That should help clarify, and perhaps I can incorporate that. I want to examine it some more. But to me, Isaiah 52, which shows how we have rejected Christ, and certainly we betrayed him, just as Peter did, just as those who left him did, just as Judas did, we betrayed him to death through our lives and our sin. People say Judas could not have been offered the bread and the wine. Why not? No one there was converted save Christ. He told Peter later in Luke, when you are converted. No, he wasn't converted. Judas wasn't. But Christ didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And he offered, or does and will, offer salvation to everyone on earth before this is done. And it only fits that he would offer forgiveness through repentance to Judas as well as everyone else. That's why Judas was there for the bread and the wine. But we have betrayed Christ with our sins. Now, this concept of sin or not sin, but Egypt picturing bondage to sin, slavery to a wrong system, could make the book of Romans come alive. Because it talks much in there about bondage and slavery to sin. They were released the night of the 14th. This information could be very, very important in terms of the turnaround. It could be a very key factor. Perhaps that is why God has not brought it out so plainly, so clearly, as he has recently. Perhaps, since God gave us this knowledge, that's why he wants us to share it with others. It could be a key factor in whether or not we truly keep the Passover in the way that God intended and to be worthy of that Passover. When we have besmirched and befouled Jesus Christ on the 14th all these years by going to work and eating leavening on a day that is a holy convocation and a feast before the Lord and a memorial forever. This could be a very important key and that may be exactly why God has put Isaiah 53 right in the middle of the cry to wake up, pointing us out of Babylon, and then at the end of chapter 53, telling us to sing, O barren that did not bear. We've seen many inferences into the, in the scripture or places where he has said, bear down, give birth to righteousness to Christ living his life in us. 
to give birth to that which all Christians are seeking, and that is righteousness. So, after interjecting chapter 53 into Isaiah, we got to the chapter we closed with last week, that is the beginning of incredible blessings to those who will hear. Chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren that did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you that did not prevail with child. And then he goes on and talks about enlarging the place of the tent and not to fear that we won't be ashamed. Verse 5. Our maker is our husband, our redeemer. He has called us as a woman forsaken and that he only forsook us for a small moment. Verse 7. But with great mercies he will gather us. Haggai talks about how he will gather the church. And it will be to the work of the two witnesses that he will gather the church. The, new, the latter temple has to be built by them. Well, that's the way this is going to come down. He says in verse 11 that we have been afflicted, tossed, and tempest, and not comforted, but he will lay our foundations with rubies, sapphires, garnets, and beautiful stones that we'll no more be eating pebbles, a mouthful of rock, if you will, but that he will give us beautiful things to enjoy. And our children will be taught of the Lord, and great peace shall come. I quoted Haggai 2.9 where it says of the latter temple that peace would come in this place. Then any who gather against us, verse 15, will fall for our sake. The faithful remnant is going to be protected by God. Now, our country, our government, is going to persecute, martyr, and seek to kill us. We'll see in chapter 56 when we get there that the Sabbath will be a key factor. But God says he will protect us. Verse 17, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage. This is what we're going to inherit from God, his protection, peace, and safety of the servants of the eternal, and their righteousness is of me, says the eternal. Can any one of us point to our righteousness and say, because of me, because of what I am, God will deliver me. No one who understands human nature and himself could say that. Christ said, I will look to the one that says, be merciful on me, a sinner, and has trouble even lifting his head to look up to God because he realizes how weak, how pitiful, how wretched he really is. That's the kind God will look to because they are being realistic. They understand what they are. And they understand that the only opportunity at salvation is through the righteousness of God that he puts in us and that flows through us. You cannot have God's Spirit bottle it up and keep it for your own pleasure and enjoyment. God's Spirit is something that flows as living waters. It flows through you 
and out to others. Herbert Armstrong expressed it as the give or get way. It is something that is living, it is alive, it does not sit still, and it is not stagnant. The, the righteousness of God has to flow through our heads through prayer and study and diligence in staying close to God and out to others that they might see the righteousness of God through our attitudes and our actions. That's why 1 Thessalonians, I think it's 5.21, says, quench not the spirit. If you quench it, if you stop the flow, you stop the Spirit of God from working through you. His righteousness has to flow through us. It can't be our own goodness. It can't be how wonderful we are or our magnetic personality or whatever it is we think we might have. It has to be the Spirit of God moving through us and out to others. That is his righteousness. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. We'll see in chapter 64, I think it is. Oh, that's in Jeremiah. But his righteousness must come through. Put on the holy garments of his righteousness. Now notice, if that is done, what the result is. Chapter 55. Ho, or pay attention, everyone that thirsts. Now what time are we in right now? We are between Amos 4 and Amos 8, as I see it. We're in a partial famine where people are having trouble. Many, many people will tell you that wherever they may be in the church of God, I'm starving. I'm not being fed is a very common expression. I'm not being fed. I, I'm okay where I am. I, I like the people. I enjoy the fellowship. But I'm not being fed. I am spiritually athirst, in other words. Everyone that thirsts, come you to the waters. He that has no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now you're not buying it in that sense, just as it tells us the virgins to go buy oil for their lamps. It doesn't mean pay money to get it. Simon Magus made that mistake trying to buy the Holy Spirit from the apostles. Peter told him, go to hell with your money, or to Hades, the grave, or take your money to the grave. You cannot buy it, but there is a place that it will be freely disseminated. Let's go back, keep your finger here, to the book of Haggai. We simply have to tie this in because it is germane to the situation. Well, let's, I'll come back there probably. Let's go to first of all to Zechariah 4. It's speaking here of the two witnesses, the two anointed ones in, chapter, in verse 14, which equates to Revelation 11, the two anointed ones there, and those are the only two places in the Bible that the anointed ones are mentioned. So it has to be the same ones. They refer to one another. Uh, Revelation 11 and Zechariah 4 refer to one another. Verse 11, speaking of Joshua and Zerubbabel here, 
Then answered I, verse 11, and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick? Now where do you get oil, olive oil? You get it from the olive tree. So you can tie this with Matthew 25, those who have oil. It will be the two olive trees. That is the only viable work that will be left upon the earth. And he says, what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? Now the church in Revelation 1 and 2 is depicted as a candlestick, which has seven uh, branches. And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? The Spirit of God, as I said a few moments ago, cannot be quenched, it has to flow. So the oil has to flow from these two olive trees through the branches and be emptied out of themselves. Now let's notice back in verse 2 of chapter 4. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof. I should have read this first, actually. And two olive trees by it, and upon the right side of the bowl, and on the other, and on the left side thereof. And he said, What are these? And then he goes to describe uh, Zerubbabel, he just described Joshua in chapter 3. And it says at the end here in verse 14, these are the two that will be. So the only place that the understanding of God's word will be disseminated, where God's spirit will be released, that is preached, taught, and will flow, is with those two. They feed oil to all seven of the candlesticks, which are depicted in Revelation as the churches. Then it goes on to describe those churches in Revelation 2 and 3, what their problems and their strengths are, and that all seven, not six, that is, including Philadelphia, all seven must overcome. Now for the moment, go back to Isaiah 55. Everyone that thirsts, come to the waters, and he that has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money, without price. So good spiritual food and good water will be provided. And it's not something you can buy the price. You have to buy it by making the effort to find it. You have to buy it by being willing to change mind and attitude and actions so that you are a proper receptacle for the oil and the wine and the food of God. Otherwise, you will hear it, but you will not be able to digest it, and it will do you no good. There are people who find the truth but are unable to digest it. They get no benefit from it as a result. So you do have to buy it by changing, by growing, by overcoming, by opening your mind. 
but it's without money, without price. It's freely given, freely received. What did Christ tell the disciples? Freely you have been given, freely offer it to others. Wherefore, verse 2, do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? Hearken diligently to me, and eat you that which is good, and let your soul delight in its fatness. Now doesn't God tell us over and over to turn to him with our whole heart, to be diligent in our seeking of God? Now he says the same thing right here. See, that's the price we have to pay. God will make it available to those who are willing to pay that price. To seek him diligently, as Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, is silver and gold are sought. That is our part. But it's going to be made available if we're willing to turn diligently to God. Now let's see how this fits with Haggai. We'll finally get there. There will come a time in the end when the people say, the time has not come to build the Lord's house. Now he addresses this book to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, who ultimately become the two witnesses. And he says, speak to this people, saying the time to build the Lord's house has come, but they will say, no, everything's falling apart. This isn't time to build something. And God says, is it time for you to dwell in your fine homes in this house, lie waste? Should you not be building God's house, his temple? And that comes in several forms. Our own body and mind, which are the temple of his spirit. The church, which is also the house of God. Consider your ways, he said. Now he's talking to the church here. You have sown much and bring in little. Have not many organizations been sowing much in terms of booklets, broadcasts, TV programs, personal visits, evangelistic campaigns? Sowing much, putting a lot of effort out, but not getting much in return? That is the case across the board. You sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. In other words, you say, I'm not being fed. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. And he says, consider your ways. He's telling the churches and individuals, think about what you're doing. It isn't accomplishing much. Get busy building my house. The church is busy doing what they feel is their commission rather than doing what God wants done. That is build his house. Get the bride ready, to use another analogy, as individuals and as a body. Build a temple as individuals and as a body. Why, God says, verse 9, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. God has destroyed his church for Laodiceanism 
And we have all built our little organizations, our little houses, both individually and as organizations, and each runs to his own, rather than building God's. He said then he had caused a drought on the land. As I said, we're between Amos 4 and Amos 8. A partial famine in Amos 4, where, hard, where it is very difficult to find good food and drink. But he said, a time is coming in Amos 8 when you will go from sea to sea and not be able to find. There is only going to be one place left that food and drink will be disseminated. And God says that through Joshua and Zerubbabel, the remnant of the people will be called to work and build the house of God, verse 14. And he says, verse 9, the glory of this latter, of chapter 2, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I bring peace. Then he goes on to show we are to separate the clean from the unclean. Is that not what we have been reading in Isaiah? Now let's go back to Isaiah 55 with this in mind, that God is going to begin a work and he is going to draw a faithful remnant there to build his church. The fact that it has to be under Zerubbabel and Joshua, who are the two witnesses or the two anointed ones of Zechariah 4 and Revelation 11, shows that the latter temple is something yet ahead of us. The former temple is what was built under Herbert Armstrong and has been torn down. But there will remain old men, as Haggai chapter 2, the first two or three verses say, there will be old men who will be able to compare what was to what shall be, and that the glory of the latter will be much greater than that of the former. Well, this is the answer that God has. This is what he's talking about in Isaiah 54 and 55. The language is the same as in Haggai, here in 55 verse 2. Okay, verse 3 of Isaiah 55 then. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. That's the price we have to pay. We have to listen. We have to open our ears and understand. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Now, did not David receive very sure mercies of God. David sinned egregiously, abominably, but David was forgiven. He suffered some penalties, but he was forgiven. And he is going to be king of all Israel in the world tomorrow. Now God says if we will repent and accept, if we will listen and accept his covenant, his new covenant, and live it, that he will give us the same tender mercies he gave David. You see, it isn't our righteousness that is going to gain us anything. It is the righteousness and the tender mercies of God that will cause us to be a part of those who are redeemed from this earth, to be a part of his kingdom, the bride of Christ, the 144,000. 
Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and commander to the people. We have David's example as king of Israel, what he went through and how God forgave him, and finally reckoned him as a man after his own heart, in spite of his sins, in spite of his failings, numbering Israel instead of having faith in God, and so on. He uses him as an example that we will have those sure mercies. He's also, in this end-time context, shown that he will have someone who will come in the attitude and the spirit of David. I did a sermon or a series on that, oh, years ago, which are somewhere in the tape file, to show all the scriptures that pertain to this. You can look them up, uh, go through the concordance, look up David and witness, and so on. But there will be a leader among those whom God sends at the end who will be given those same mercies, those same forgivenesses that David received, and will come with the same spirit and attitude who will care for the sheep. We have that ahead of us. Behold, you shall call a nation that you know not. Now remember, this isn't speaking of the millennium yet. This is still talking about a time when we will have people rise up against us, but God will protect us. A time, now if you'll go through Ezekiel 34, you'll see that we have a ministry today overall which has been corrupt. Everyone in the church has read those scriptures many times in Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Malachi 1, and so on. But God shows he is going to give a right kind of teacher at the end and that they will come holding the sheep in their arms as Christ would have done, and as David did. Verse 5, Behold, you shall call a nation that you know not, and nations that knew not you shall run to you because of the eternal your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God will put his glory on the latter temple. He's not talking about the glorification that comes at the resurrection here. He's talking about the glorification that will come as a result of God placing his name among his faithful. And he says, a nation that you don't know will come to you, and you will even call a people that you don't know. <coughs> See, God in Haggai says that he will stir the people to come to build his holy nation, his particular people, his royal priesthood, his bride, if you will. Where God begins to work, where the tent needs to be enlarged, where a bigger place needs to be made, is where God is going to call his remnant together. And they're going to come from all over the world, as we've seen in other scriptures, north, south, east, and west, when he gathers them. And the call will go out, and it will be answered by people unknown to those making the call. And it will go to people who do not know the ones making the call. People you don't know and people that don't know you will run to you because of the eternal your God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Remember what it says there in Zechariah 2? I'll put a wall of fire around you and be a covert from the heat. 
Isaiah 4, talking about the seven women taking hold of one man and how they'll say, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, just let us have your name. There will only be one place left that they can go where they can find God's word preached truly and the focus that God wants preached truly. I think we can see the timing of this more as we go on. Seek you the Lord, verse 6, while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near. In the millennium, he will be there and he will never go away. This is a time, speaking, this is speaking of a time before then, speak while he is available to you. Doesn't it tell the virgins when they wake up in Matthew 25, get oil quickly. Go where it is and get it quickly because the time is near. The end is close. Seek God while he may be found, while he is near. Remember Song of Songs where the young lady was in bed and he came and knocked on the door and it took her a little while to realize, well, I really should get up and let him in. She was not being as attentive to him as she should have been and he left. God is going to make himself available to the church. And we must seek him while he is near, lest he withdraw and throw us into the tribulation with the rest of Israel. But if we do seek him while he is near, we will be a part of that faithful remnant that he blesses like he talks about here in Isaiah 54 and 55. Let's read on. Verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Repent, change, grow, overcome. That's what he told all the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. End time prophecy, the book of Revelation is. All those seven churches or attitudes exist right now throughout the church. It's not something that just went nose to tail through history. Maybe it did in one fulfillment, but the final fulfillment is at the end. The book of Revelation is written to the end. All the churches see what happens to Thyatira, it says. Well, if they were those to tail through history, they're already dead, or they haven't appeared yet, so how are they going to know what happened to Thyatira? They're all here at the end. So the call is the same here as it is in Revelation 2 and 3. Forsake your way, the unrighteous man, his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What an incredible promise that is. The right here at the end, just as God begins to open the door to tremendous blessings and a glorification of the latter temple, he says it doesn't matter what you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter anything of your past, just change. And I will abundantly pardon. Is that not what he did with David? The sure mercies of God. Didn't David write Psalm 119, all 1 through 172 verses, I think it is, in which not one verse does not mention the mercy of God? 
David felt that tremendous weight lifted off his back because he understood how merciful God could be. Even though God allowed his son to die, and he had fasted for seven days, when he got up off his face, having heard the child had died, he didn't weep and wail. He got up, washed himself, and ate. He had already done his mourning. He understood God's incredible mercy and that allowing that child to die was part of the penalty that needed to happen because of the example to the rest of Israel and because of Uriah, whom he had killed and whose wife he had taken. He understood, but he also understood God's great mercy in allowing him to survive and later to produce Solomon, who would be a king of Israel. Understanding this, we should have the righteousness of Christ and show mercy upon others and forgiveness to others. Because the Sermon on the Mount says, if you don't show mercy and forgiveness, I won't give you any. So our relationship and our attitude toward others in the church will be reflected in God's attitude toward us. It's that simple. If we are unforgiving, unmerciful, negative, down, then that's the way God will treat us. If we are forgiving, merciful, upbeat, and loving of our brothers, God will treat us the same way. He will have mercy upon him who forsakes his evil way and comes to have the righteousness of God. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Remember, we've already read that scripture. I won't go back there now where it says our sins will be forgiven and wiped away as a cloud in one day. God is just going to wipe it all out and he's going to return blessing to us. Now that should make us eager to change and put on righteousness, shouldn't it? We change as human beings very slowly, normally. We fight the same old problems year after year after year, decade after decade, it seems. Now there's going to come a point where God is near, that we're reading about here, but then he will withdraw unless we turn to him while he is near. And unless we forsake our thoughts and our ways so we can be forgiven and abundantly pardoned. In other words, we're down at the time to fish or cut bait. Cut your line, forget the bait. There's a time where the just will just have to remain unjust still in the revelation. It's time to change. I want God's mercy and abundant pardon on me. 
It's time to quit fooling around and waiting year after year and decade after decade to change and just do it. Or it will be too late. I don't know when the cutoff point will be. Can't tell you that. But it's coming and it isn't too far off. It will do us no good to remain the way we are. We simply have to pay the price to change. Now we are going to be offered bread and wine and milk, good things spiritually. But we can only partake of them if we pay the price. Not the price of money, not something you can go out and purchase. The price we have to pay is the crucifixion of self. Same price Jesus Christ paid. If we pay that price, we can eat freely. Continuing now, the end of verse 9, beginning 10. Oh, well, let's see. My thought, no, I need to back up yet. He will abundantly pardon into verse 7. Now verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Eternal. See, the righteousness has to be of him, as we saw in the last verse of 54. Our natural, normal thoughts aren't God's thoughts. I don't care how good we think we are. They just aren't. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In other words, this thing is going to happen. It is inevitable. It's something God is going to do. The latter temple will be built. There will be those who will teach the truth and provide good food and drink for us. And there will be those who change, who repent, who overcome. God does not call in vain. God did not create this earth and the inhabitants thereof in vain. If he puts his word out, it will return to him with great increase. There's where the parables of the sower fit and of the talents. To have what we have and do nothing with it will cause grief. But if we are given much, how much ever we are given, we will be held accountable for, and there had better be increase. Because God does not put his word out there and not have it return a crop. It just doesn't happen. It will not return to him void. It will prosper. 
But when God starts a work here at the end, it will not be in vain. It will prosper. He will call a faithful remnant who are willing to look at themselves realistically, take responsibility for themselves, and change. He will call those together to build a temple that will far exceed that which we experienced in worldwide. That's not to put worldwide down. God used it as a calling to open a lot of minds to a lot of truths. But what is to come is going to be the gleaning, the remnant of those who went on to grow in maturity and the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the temple will have greater glory than that which came before. It will not be those who gave up. It will not be those who wrapped their talent in a napkin. It will be those who grow and overcome and change and take on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Wouldn't we like to have joy and peace again? We're in this pivotal time where the cry is being made. It's time to wake up and quit being walked on, change, grow, and overcome so that we can be partakers of the peace and joy that is about to come to the faithful remnant of the church. You and I have that opportunity because we are reading this and understanding it. And if we respond to it, we can pray that we be accounted worthy and that we have mercy that was extended to David and he will abundantly pardon and forgive us and let us partake of what shall come. For you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. And instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. I think it's chapter 41 where he says he'll plant the seven trees in the wilderness. Seven churches, seven trees planted in the wilderness. And instead of thorns and briars in the wilderness and the spiritual desert that we now see in the church, will come up fir trees. And he uses the metaphor here of the trees of the field clapping their hands with joy waving their branches and clapping them together is the metaphor he uses. That's how happy it's going to be. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What God is going to do with the end time church is going to carry right on through into the world tomorrow. It will never again be cut off or cut down. Ezekiel 17 shows that after Herbert Armstrong is gone and Jodakach is gone, both have died in the midst of Babylon, that he will start a sprig and make a dry tree turn into a green tree. That's what he's talking about right here. He tells Zerubbabel at the end of the book of Haggai that it will make him a standard before the people. So what he is going to do to the end time church is going to be a sign and a standard to the rest of the church and the world and it will be a 
preview of the millennium. God is going to give us blessing and protection when the rest of the world is dying and we will be a light to the world. Spiritual Israel, the bride, has to become a light to the world, the only light shining in a darkened world. And that is why Satan will persecute the church just as soon as he is kicked out of heaven. He can accuse the brethren no more, so we will come down and try to kill them all. Thus says the Lord, verse chapter 56, Keep you judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. But when God shows that we wake up to the call that is made at midnight, if you read Matthew 25, or the wake-up call in Isaiah 51 and 52, and depart from Babylon, he says it's near to come. But these blessings he goes through after we come to accept Christ's sacrifice for what it really was, perhaps to rehearse it properly for the first time in over 70 years, God will then begin to bless. I don't know the exact timing thereof, but I believe that doing the Passover right has to be a key factor. It just has to be because that's the context it's in. So do judgment and do justice for my, my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. He says our righteousness will be of him. He will reveal his righteousness in his faithful few, his latter-day temple. Blessed is the man that does this and the son of man that lays hold on it. Don't just listen to this and say, man, I'd like to be part of that blessing. Lay hold on it. How did Jacob lay hold on Jesus Christ? He grabbed him and he would not turn him loose. And he hung on till morning. And Christ had to break his leg or put his hip out of joint in order to get him to turn loose. That's the way we need to lay hold on what we're hearing from these scriptures. Doing it is the key. Blessed is the man that does this. Don't we read in the New Testament? Peter, James, Paul. Doers of the law are not justified. I mean, not hearers only, but doers are justified. You've got to do it. It doesn't do any good to know it, to hear it, if you don't do something about it. And lays hold on it that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. The Sabbath is going to become a very major issue. If you keep Sunday, you'll be part of the beast. The beast is going to kill the whore. America is going to be destroyed. And then the beast will take her place as the hammer of the whole earth. Babylon will fall twice. Once in the form of America and Britain, once in the form of the beast when Christ destroys it. The Sabbath will be a key issue. I think we've always understood that. But the mark of the beast certainly involves the Sabbath. If you keep Sunday, 
That's their mark. You keep Sabbath, that's God's mark. And it'll be clearly seen. It might even have to do with the annual Sabbaths and whether they are kept correctly or not. Passover as the first seven, a day of unleavened bread included. Lay hold on God's Sabbath and, and from polluting it. Have we not been polluting that annual Sabbath? I don't know that this is speaking specifically of that, but we certainly have. Inadvertently and unknowingly, but we did. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Those who felt cut off didn't know what to do. Those who were made eunuchs for the kingdom's sake felt all alone and unproductive, if you will. That's what a eunuch is, unproductive. God said, don't feel that way. Because if you're a eunuch that keeps my Sabbath, you're going to be blessed. I gave a sermon some time back showing that we are the eunuchs for the kingdom. We have cut ourselves off from concourse, or if you will, intercourse with the world. With the great whore. We have separated ourselves, hopefully, from her. In mind and body. In thought and intent and in action. It's a process. I don't think we're there yet. But we've made progress. We have made ourselves eunuchs from the world, not consorting with this world. His spiritual eunuchs that keep his Sabbaths. Was that not what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? They were made physical eunuchs in the kingdom. God had told Hezekiah, I will make your sons eunuchs in Babylon. And what Daniel and those young men did was cut themselves off from the Babylonian way. They would not bow down to Babylon, and God protected them. Daniel is an end-time book written for you and me. If we will not bow down to Babylon, God will protect us in the lion's den and in the fiery furnace that is about to envelop the world. We are not made eunuchs physically. We are to make ourselves eunuchs spiritually. To cut ourselves off, if you will, from this world. Not to be intimate with it in any way. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, verse 4, and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Not the covenant of the culture of this world, but the covenant of God, of life and peace if we obey his rules, statutes, laws, and ways. A covenant of forgiveness and mercy and grace. That's what grace is all about, unmerited pardon. Pardon we don't deserve because we are not righteous of ourselves. It is his righteousness. And because his spirit dwells in us and we react to it, don't quench it, but let it flow through and out of us and grow and overcome, then he gives us abundant pardon and mercy we don't deserve. 
The roots of all the new covenant are found in these prophecies that are written for the end time church. Verse 5. Even to them will I give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and of daughters. What is a name better than a son or a daughter? Wife. In his house, in his walls, what is his house? Zion, Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. He's going to give us a place as a bride in the new Jerusalem, which comes down at the beginning of the millennium, when we return from our honeymoon before the Father. I will give them an everlasting name. Is that what you read in the book of Revelation 2 and 3? A new name, an everlasting name, that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord. Not just physical Israel, not just spiritual Israel, but those who attach themselves. Those Gentiles who are grafted in and become Israelites just as much as those who are blood Israelites. It isn't the blood that counts. It isn't the color of the skin that counts. It's the conversion of the mind that counts. <coughs> Paul said he counted it as dung that he was a Benjamite physically. You know what dung is. That's what he counted being a physical Israelite as compared to being a spiritual Israelite of which all peoples and lands can partake if they repent. People we don't know will come to us if we are truly spiritual Israel. And they will join themselves no matter what they are physically. That doesn't matter. A spiritual Israelite is all that matters. Verse 6, also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and takes hold of my covenant. To really keep his Sabbath, to cling to it, and his covenant along with it, the rest that goes, the rest that goes with that Sabbath. The Sabbath has always been a test commandment. It still will be. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians who might not lie or steal, but very few of them who keep God's Sabbath. It is a sign between God and his people from Exodus 31 on, and it will be here at the end again. <coughs> Verse 7, Even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon my altar. Now, we're not going to bring physical sacrifices. There will be in the millennium, but speaking here of the end time, there won't be. But what sacrifice will we bring? We are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1. We are to be servants, giving, helping, sharing, crucifying the old self and providing ourselves as a sacrifice, spending ourselves, to use the analogy of money, for one another and for God. We will be his tithe that he brings to the world. The tithe of his church. That tithe must be spent wisely. It must be used judiciously. Everyone has the same amount of time every day. 
You can spend it however you wish. Will we spend it God's way? We are a living sacrifice. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. His temple, his latter temple, is going to be a house of prayer. Closeness to God. The Lord God which gathers the outcasts of Israel, speaking of his spiritual Israel here, says, yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. Now this, I think, as an antecedent, goes back to verse 4 of the previous chapter where he brings the sure mercies of David to the church. He's going to bring the same kind of leadership to us and those outcasts which came are going to be joined by many others. Remember when uh, David went out to the cave of Adullam? Who came to him at that time? He feared for his life, fled from Saul, and out came the criminals, those that were in debt, the misfits, those with bad attitudes, etc. Those who did not for one reason or another fit in with the rest of society went to David. And I think that the same thing is going to be true basically in the end time. God does not call the mighty and the noble, except in a few cases, so you can excuse yourself there, but he calls the weak and the base. Those are the ones he will use. Those who cannot lift themselves, their heads to heaven, but who bow their head and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those who have that attitude and in that sense are poor in spirit. They have gotten rid of the spirit of self, the spirit of competition, the spirit of selfishness, and admitted that they are poor in the spirit of God and are seeking him with their whole heart. Those are the ones God will gather beside those that gathered ahead of time. Now notice this is, again in the context, the timing before the millennium. All you beasts of the field, come to devour. Now when does God invite the beasts of the field to come? In Ezekiel and Revelation and so on. When he begins to make a great feed for them, the bodies of those at the end time who find themselves in tribulation in the day of the Lord. Not millennial yet. Come to the great feast, he says. A feast is going to be partly upon the church and the organizations in the church. Notice verse 10. His watchmen are blind. They are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Not awake and alert, not watching and knowing what's really going on. Having a perception of what they think need done, needs done, but not knowing what's really going on. And not knowing, they don't bark. They preach smooth and easy things, sleepy time things. Yes, they are greedy dogs which can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, their own way of thinking, their own way of doing. They're not paying attention to what God is saying. Everyone for his gain, from his quarter. 
everyone looking for a paycheck. Hirelings, God says, will be here at the end. This isn't speaking of the millennium, is it? Looks like right now to me. Come you, say they, I will fetch wine since we're Philadelphians, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink because we have wonderful doctrine and we're the only ones who are doing what is right. And tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant because we are the only ones who are Philadelphians. Isn't that what most are saying? Just side with me, everything will be okay. We can eat and drink and enjoy because we are the only ones who God will deliver. That is a very, very dangerous position to take. That is why you hear cry aloud and spare not here. We'll see that now one chapter away. But that's all the time I have for today, so we'll stop at the end of chapter 57. It goes on to explain there some of the problems we have today and what will be the ultimate outcome, which is good. So the blessings that we read about in chapter 54 and 55 are coming. They are not far away. We need to wake up, be alert, be alive, not greedy dogs, not sleepy dogs, but letting ourselves and everyone else know what is going on so that they might have a chance to wake up and receive oil and a pardon and blessing from God. And I think if we understand these things, we have a responsibility to let them know because the blood could be on our head if we don't. So let's work and let's be the example to the world and to the church we have a difficult time being an example to ourselves, for that matter. But it's time to change. It's time to grow. It's time to overcome and lay hold of these things and not just hear them and say, that's wonderful, I want to be part of it, but make the changes that are needful to guarantee that we will be a part of the blessing that is about to come on the latter temple of God.